Hello and welcome back to the Bentley Prari Museum podcast. I'm Alexander and I'm joined by Tim. Hi there. And Dave. Hello. We also have a special guest with us today from the 253 Squadron Living History Group. So I'd like to welcome Adrian. Hi there, everyone. Good to have you here. So today we are talking about the Battle of Britain. We will go back in time a little bit to the Bentley Priory Museum Battle of Britain Commemorative Day. Myself and Adrian will share some memories from that day, along with a recording of the Spitfire flypast. We will also be digging into a little bit of the background of the Battle of Britain with Tim and Dave. And on that note, Tim, now our listeners might be wondering why are we putting out this Battle of Britain episode at the end of October? Why not say in August or September, where the fighting would have been at its peak? Um, yeah, it's um, an interesting period. Uh, Britain in, um, in RAF kind of history books uh, occurred between the 10th of July and the 31st of October 1940, um, and was seen largely as a daylight battle. Um, in actual fact, there's a bit of overlap then with the Blitz, which is again largely seen as a nighttime uh, battle. Um, and that really started, certainly the Blitz on London is deemed to have started on the 7th of September 1940. Um, so we have this kind of overlap period between the Battle of Britain and the Blitz, if you're kind of booky about it. Um, and so this seemed an appropriate time um, with preparation for a new exhibition uh, at Bentley Priory Museum next year on the Blitz to, um, to, to release this podcast. Thanks for that, Tim. Sorry to put you on the spot there. But absolutely, we will be coming back to the Blitz very soon in a future episode, I am sure. Okay, so Adrian, as you are a guest here today, I'm going to turn my attention to you. I met Adrian at the Battle of Britain Commemorative Day. I found him outside the museum entrance with a few members of the 253 Squadron Living History Group. They had pitched a tent along with being dressed in full RAF outfits. So Adrian, can you tell us more about what you do? 253 Squadron, yeah, we're a living history group. Um, We've uh, chosen a squadron that actually took part in, in the Battle of Britain as our name and we researched them as well as obviously the whole RAF history during World War II and also um, its predecessor during World War One, the Royal Flying Corps. But um, yeah, 253 Squadron, the Battle of Britain, they uh, spent some bit based at RAF Kenley in Surrey, which is near where quite a few of our members are. So again, that's another reason why we chose them and they flew the Hurricanes, which obviously did the bulk of the fighting. Other wasn't the Spitfire as is more popular plane that's remembered, but the Hurricane did a did a fair bit more, and there was a lot more of them. So we're mainly researching and promoting the two five three squadrons' history during the battle because of those reasons. Um, you also had a table outside with some games, so I understand that you do do some gaming as well. Is, is that part of what you want to you know promote with your group as well? Yes, it is because obviously. Um, yeah, the game we're playing were, is a game called Blood Red Skies by Warlord Games. And yeah, we try and bring a games table around with us so that public can sit down and have a go 
flying the planes in the game things because it just it's it's hands-on educational approach especially for the younger generations we had a lot of the uh, the younger members who turned up on the day join in and and play the game so it, no, it's just another tool to help educate what happens and sort of, sort of keep the keep the memory going yeah no absolutely and i i really enjoyed playing it you know i i didn't play it for too long but just for the little bit of time i did it, it was really interesting it's something i think i'd like to come back to at some point and and do you think that that's something that you could develop and you know maybe start going to museums and almost doing like gaming tournaments or clubs and that kind of thing you know to get younger people involved in these museums such as Bentley Parley or like the wings when I saw you last weekend yeah that is something we'd very much like to do so yeah so when we brought it to Bentley Priory that was the first time we've trialed doing that and yeah that was a good success so we have spoken to the wings and there's a few other places we'd love to take it to and um, a company house and brand models has been supplying us with with the models and games to do so so yeah we hope to um over the coming years, maybe develop a little bit of a, a league or something that we travel around to the different museums on event days or even create its own event at them. Who knows? Yeah, no, I, I think that would be a wonderful idea. And I, I could see that actually quite working well. And I think, you know, it's, it's things like that that could really change, you know, the way that children interact with museums. You know, they, they kind of, what they're used to these days is playing games and doing that kind of thing. So... I think adding an element of that to it could, you know, could be actually quite a good way to move forward. And, you know, something I'm very interested in. Yeah, definitely. Well, also with, uh, with obviously, you saw the Blood Red Skies game, the tabletop game, which is something that generation, you know, different generations can do together because there's models to build and paint, there's the games to play. So it, it helps obviously bridge that gap as well. But we are looking at doing something a bit more... Uh, with computers and things in the pipeline for a, really for the younger generation to really sink their teeth into. Yes, and uh, I was just about to come on to that with your yeah your new announcement of uh, what what you're planning on doing. So yes, yeah, so tell us more about that. Yeah, we're in the process now of starting to build a well a Spitfire cockpit and a Hurricane cockpit, and they will be hopefully wired up to computers and a VR system to be sort of simulators. And we can uh, bring them around to the different museums we're, we're at for people to have a go and see what it's like actually sitting, at the, using the controls to fly one of these aircraft. Yeah, and is that something, um, are you going to do fundraising events and that kind of thing to, you know, pull this together? Is that something you're planning on doing also? It is, yeah. We're um, So all our social media and website and things are just being rebuilt. So they will have a big sort of our cockpit fund links on this because... Uh, so especially as I said they're going to be hopefully linked up to computer software and stuff to be simulators so yeah it's not going to be a cheap build and we're obviously just it's a hobby for all our members so um, yeah we are traveling around with a donations jar and uh, a little kind of uh, well I say trade and little shop stand that where the world profits will go towards the cockpit funds and if we sell stuff at museums we'll also donate half the profits to those museums yeah, I feel, you know, I think it's wonderful, actually, you know, what what you guys are doing and it's 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 very much needed. And, you know, you're you're bringing something as yourselves, you know, dressed in, you know, the outfits and everything, which, you know, for any generation, actually, you know, people can appreciate. But then you're also doing good 
by you know trying to give back to the museums and also develop things for yourself so i think you know it's a it's a great organization that you've got going on there and um just thinking back to the uh, commemorative day at Bentley Park, did you have any like uh, memories from that day that have stuck with you? What, you know, that you've sort of enjoyed? Obviously we had the uh, Spitfire fly past as well. Um, I know that's always a big uh, event of the day. Yeah, that's, uh, that's always a, a good highlight that stands out. But I think the biggest thing, obviously for me, I spent pretty much the whole day on our stand so it was just talking to all the people as they uh, came by to come into the museum and then obviously again when they left and it, it is that just chatting education remembering I think those are really the highlights the, in, the interactions with, with members of the public and things and obviously as we've done the uh, event event prior now for the last two years obviously I haven't been there last year obviously talking about the museum with them as, as well because I knew what I was talking about this year so it was last year obviously it was my first visit so it's, it's nice being able to, to do that as well it is about promoting the different museums because as well as the group and obviously we're always looking for new members and that's always a highlight as well when people get in touch with us afterwards go yeah we would love to uh, join in with the odd uh, event here and there you know come along join the squadron uh, whatever rank they choose to portray learn about all the different gear and equipment and the daily lives so hopefully as we grow we'll have better memories because we'll be able to maybe put on a little bit of a of a more in-depth reenactment of a day in the life of a Battle of Britain pilots and also the air crew as well. Obviously, we're desperately trying to research them more and hopefully get more equipment and maybe some vintage vehicles to recreate the, all the stuff that was around the aircraft on the airfield. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, it, it's definitely something that will grow and evolve over time. And, you know, like you say, you, you're going out now and people are paying interest to what you're doing and they do want to join. So I think, you know, it's it's definitely going to only get better. Um, Tim and Dave, is, is there anything you might like to ask Adrian while he's here? Obviously, you haven't met him before, so this is, this is a first. So feel free to, you know, quiz him. Yeah, OK, Adrian, how, do you, how comfortable do you find the uniforms? Uh, not too, too bad. I mean, obviously, on a, most events, we haven't got everything on, but we have done the odd event where we've had all the parachute and everything on behind us as well and that was a, a sponsored um walk or, or, or was meant to kind of been a run that was for uh capital affirm the battle of britain memorial we did 80 laps of it between us in and i did it with the full gear on and yeah that was a little wary after a while with it with the weight of the, the parachute pack and things but all in all like i said for most of the events we're as we're not trained getting into the aircraft at the moment until we get the cockpits is not too bad but once we've got these cockpits and if we integrate them into a bit of a of a scramble and we charge out and, and jump into them then we'll have all that gear on so then it will be a bit more uncomfortable i would imagine <laughs> how about the itchy trousers oh they haven't been too bad i mean <laughs> yeah i mean those of us who've got actual 1940s rather than more modern reproductions yeah i'm sure they're finding it a little more than uh, than those of us with the reproductions <laughs> oh dear <laughs> yeah, Dave, have you got anything you would like to add to that? Yeah, hi Adrian. Um, just coming back to the actual history of the squadron that, that you named yourself after and portrayed, um, are there any sort of famous fighter races that we might be familiar with? Because I understand right at the beginning of the Battle of Britain, the Hurricane was a predominant defence aircraft before the Spitfire sort of came online, and we always imagine 
um, all of these romantic heroes saving the nation in their spitfires. And there are books available for people to read from, um, you know, Jeffrey Wellham and, and people. But how about, have you got any sort of famous aces? Um, I believe that Barda started in Hurricanes and Sailor Malan did as well. Yeah, yeah, they were in Hurricanes. Unfortunately, they were in 253. Um, yeah. But yeah, they were both Hurricane Aces. And yeah, that's what like I said. People don't realize this. A lot of these people flew Hurricanes more than Spitfires. Um, but 253, they joined, um, well, see, they were around throughout the whole of World War II. But uh, for coming down to 11 Group, they came down the 29th of August and stayed through to the end and beyond at Kenley until uh, they were then moved elsewhere in early 41 obviously all the people who were both flew and on the ground are heroes but yeah as far as the the big name aces unfortunately uh yeah none of them were in 253 we're hoping with all our research social media we will start um sort of talking about the different pilots in the history but kenley revival group their website have a lot of information about the different pilots and things for 253 okay Thank you. Yeah, that's really great. Thank you so much, Adrian. I will let you get off and uh, enjoy the rest of your evening. But no, it's really great to have you here and to talk to you. And I'm sure our listeners will be very interested in what you do. And I'm sure some of them probably actually saw you on the day as well. So I'm sure they will remember you. So uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, th thank you for having us. And hopefully we'll uh be back at some point on a, on a future podcast and try and get a few more of the uh, other members of the group together yeah definitely no that'd be great yeah all right thank you all right see you then all right take care thank you cheers adrian all right thank you hi adrian okay alex you you were there for the day too you were there to introduce your project at, at bentley priory museum how did that special day go for you yeah, no, it, it was such a nice day in, you know, many ways. I mean, I, I really feel some sort of connection with Bentley Priory anyway. You know, it's just something special about the place. And, you know, I always love being there. So having, you know, this commemorative day where there was actually, you know, I, th I think in total there was around about 150 people, something like that, attended. And, you know, after something like COVID, to see that many people back together in, in a place, you know, of importance like that, it's, it was just a lovely thing to see. And, you know, there was, you know, ex-RF men and women there as well. And, you know, they come with their medals on and, you know, you could see that they were just really happy to be there. And I think for me, seeing that, it, I don't know, it just felt so nice. And, you know, we had the Spitfire fly past there was a choir there singing just after the fly pass. So yeah, you know, it was a, it was a great day in many ways in that sense. And for me as well, um, as Tim mentioned, uh, I was introducing my um, new project, which uh, is coming up at Bentley Priory, which is called Memoirs of the Blitz. Um, so I'm currently hunting down people that are, um, well, hunting down is the right word actually <laughs> sounds, a bit, sounds a bit bad um, I'm, I'm currently uh, looking for people who experienced the blitz um obviously you know they're, they're getting quite old now so um it's, it's harder to find them but actually i was fortunate in you know being there to advertise you know that there, there were, were some of these older people there um and yeah i i, I met a great person there called uh, manford 
Um, and he come back to one of my workshops that I was having a couple of weeks ago. And yeah, he, he was a uh, refugee from Germany and luckily he got out just before the war. So yeah, it's, it's fascinating to hear his story. And, you know, I think he was very grateful. I hope, you know, that I was allowed to facilitate that for him. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the project you'll definitely hear more about coming up, but in essence, it's, yeah, capturing all histories from those who lived during the Blitz. And uh, yeah, we're going to translate that into, or interpret, I should say, um, that into a new exhibition in March next year at Bentley Priory. So it was a perfect place for me to be, um, to pitch that, but also, you know, it was a, it was just a lovely day anyway, so. Yeah, and in terms of visitors, Alex, did was there quite a cross-section in terms of generations or? Yeah, no, absolutely, I think, yeah, there, there was a lot of children there and there was, you know, I, it, it almost seemed, yeah, I think there was an even amount of, you know, between older people that potentially could have lived through, you know, some of that Battle of Britain time and younger and, you know, and then sort of like their generations down from that. And I think, you know, uh, I coming back to my project, actually, there were some people come over to me and they did start talking about um you know, their parents in the war. So, you know, I think it's one of those things that's a knock-on effect that, you know, it's been passed down. And, you know, obviously it's a very um, prominent part of English or, you know, British history. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, it definitely interests, you know, many people. And I, I'm sure if my memory serves me correct, you know, there were older people there with, you know, their, what would have been their children and their children's children. So, you know, like three generations of, people there and a family and yeah I think that was just lovely to see because you know they're all going to celebrate I guess what their you know grandparents and great grandparents would have experienced so yeah I think that was lovely. Yeah it's great to think that kind of family stories and family histories are, are, are prompted and shared through the generations by events like that and yeah the Kids' faces good to see when the uh, when the aeroplane flew over. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, I think you, you know even even my face, I'm sure, probably would have looked like the kids' face. So yeah, I think I think everyone can kind of you know connect connect to that. And um, <laughs> as you're here uh, in this podcast very soon, I, I will we will play um, a clip of that fly past that I recorded there. And you know, I, you know, it, it's just nice to hear you know that plane and see I think seeing it in that place as well you know the, the place that was uh headquarters fighter command and then you know how it, it just kind of all fits together and it just felt right for it to be there so yeah I think you know everyone was very happy with that <laughs> this this wouldn't be a podcast made in England if I weren't to ask a question about the weather did you get a nice day <laughs> yeah actually we was very fortunate it was uh it was very sunny very dry so um yeah it turned out very well i mean you know ha had the weather have been bad the fly pass would not have happened i believe so yeah we were lucky you know and it's always a uh, very hit and miss in, in the uk so um yeah we, we were fortunate and uh yeah that was the first time i had been there for the uh event so you know i i could have missed it so i'm, I'm very glad that it happened <laughs> yeah so w were there any conversations you had on the on the day alex that you particularly remember 
Yeah, no, uh, I was actually, while I was there, as well as promoting my new project and just being there to experience it, um, I was also asked to carry out an interview with a volunteer at the museum called Pauline. That's Pauline. Yeah, Pauline. And um, yeah, I mean, that, that was really good. We interviewed a guy called uh, Don, and he had this fascinating story of how, um, I mean, I actually can't quite remember how he got into it now. But he used to attend events at Bentley Priory, you know, whenever they had big dinners um, with all the RAF crew. You know, I, I guess, you know, obviously this was post-war. But, um, yeah, he used to go and he got in with them and he had this fascinating collection of um, his signatures of these f first day covers, I think. Yeah, is it first day covers they call it? Yeah, like yes, it. Uh, yeah. Post postage things, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, first day covers of all these uh, signatures. So, yeah, he used to, you know, send some off and get back. But then, yeah, he used to meet all these pilots at these events. And I, th I, I think he said he met, you know, the Queen Mother. And, you know, it's crazy. Like, he got in right in there. And, oh, yeah, I mean, what what an experience to have. And, you know, it's just fascinating seeing this big book of all these signatures that he collected throughout his life. I mean, it's just wonderful. And you know, for him to have experienced that. Yeah, incredible, incredible. Okay, so while I was at the commemorative day, I was lucky enough, as I mentioned, to witness the Spitfire fly past. I also recorded the audio of this for you listeners to enjoy as well. So let's take a listen to that now. Is there any information, Tim, that you, you can give our listeners about, you know, the Spitfire, about the engine? Because, you know, there, there's something about the sound of that Spitfire engine that's just, I don't know, it always stays with you. And it almost, I suppose, I mean, I weren't alive at the time, obviously, but, you know, just hearing it, it's like, I suppose it's something British people can be proud of, especially, you know, in the war, they would have heard them, you know, coming back after going out fighting and, you know, so... Yeah, what, what, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, both the, the Spitfire and the Hurricane were, were single-engined monoplane fighters. Um, both had the Merlin engine, uh, which was developed by Rolls-Royce uh, pre-war. Um, very 
powerful engine um, and actually increased substantially in power as, the, as they developed the engine and the war progressed. Um, it has a very distinctive uh, sound which uh, people for generations after the war still, still recognise, I think, the, the sound of the Merlin. Uh, powered a, a range of aircraft as well as the single-engined um, Hurricane and Spitfire um, or the Lancaster bomber um, and people can still hear those sounds and see those sights with uh, units like the Royal Air Force's Battle of Britain Memorial flight which appears at many uh, displays uh, in, in times where we can see air displays um, that sound, yeah, really evocative, um, fantastic engine developed by Rolls-Royce. Um, I yeah, think I'd use that, uh, use that as an excuse to, uh, to say that as well as the, uh, the day fighters, there were night fighters. Um, the start of the Battle of Britain, they were uh, twin-engined Blenheims uh, with radial engines. Um, six squadrons of those, including uh, 209 Squadron, which I had the, the pleasure of being associated with for a number of years, uh, very much post-war. Um, and later on, the, the much more powerful twin-engine bow fighters. So it's really important not to forget, um, I mean, as Adrian said, not to forget ground crew and, and all the others who served on the ground, um, you know, hardworking, dedicated, brave, you know, they came under fire too. Uh, but also the, the night fighters, they played uh, a, a, an important role in defending Britain. Um, day fighters were called on to, to fly by night, which was um, a bit of a precarious uh, occupation, um, being blinded by the light of those, uh, the exhaust from those lovely Merlin engines. Um, and Night fighters sometimes called into action in the day, 219 Squadron operating uh, on the 15th of August in defence uh, of the um, base, the bomber base at RAF Driffield, which came under attack. So they joined with both a squadron of uh, Spitfires, 616, and um, a flight of uh, Hurricanes uh, from 73. Three squadron to fight in the day, despite the fact that they were uh, relatively underpowered. So lots of things to remember there, and that's just um, just hanging off engines and the power of engines, uh, and whether you've got one or two. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, you know, like you say, it's so interesting to think about. You know, you know, it's so easy to think, oh yeah, you've got this plane, but there is so much more goes into it. You know, and you know, there is the ground crew. There's everyone that um you know contributes to that and obviously you know RAF Bentley Ferrari at the time you know that was headquarters fighter command and um yeah so what what would the role have been uh you know for Bentley Ferrari at this time during the Battle of Britain what what was going on there? Well Bentley Priory was at the, the heart of fighter command which was tasked with the defense of the air defense of the United Kingdom um it had overall control, um, but the, the Dowding system devolved control gradually down through the system to, to tactical control, um, down as low as uh, the sectors. So you 
had fighter command. You then had a, a small number of groups that were geographically based. And then within those groups, a number of sector airfields where controllers were based. Um, so really um, detailed picture could be built up at even a national level, but also the control devolved down to a, to a local level for, for tactical control of the, fight, the defending fighters. Uh, so Bentley Priory, Priory really at the, the heart of that whole system with information coming in there um, through its filter room from the radar or then termed RDF stations, chain home, chain home, low radar stations, um, from the um, observer corps, as it were, at the time, so that they could um, locate, identify and track incoming aircraft um, and decide on the disposition of, of forces to, to meet those intruders coming inland. Um, so, yeah, really at the heart of things. Yeah, and obviously, you know, the, the story throughout, you know, Bentley Priory Museum, the exhibits really focus on this story of the one, the few, and the many. Uh, Dave, mm. do you want to sort of uh, give the audience uh, some knowledge on, you know, what, why does the museum follow this? Yeah, I mean, at the museum itself, um, there's a 10-minute audio film actually in um, Sir Hugh Dowding's office. Uh, called the the one behind the few, uh, of course, the the one the many and the few is at the fulcrum. It's at the very heart of the museum, um, and Sir Hugh's office uh, is something to be seen. It really is. You can visualise the man sitting at his desk uh, under enormous pressure uh, during the Battle of Britain. Of course, the four months between July and October of nineteen forty. And, and you very much get the feeling of the man himself, uh, the man who developed the Dowding system, uh, without which I'm sure that um, Britain would have capitulated at that time. Um, it's built up predominantly of um, the Royal Observer Corps, who were part of the, uh, the, the many, of course, um, at the coast, and uh, the development of radar um, filtering into the filter room. But the one himself, Air Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding of Bentley Priory, <laughs> uh, which is uh, nice, um, is, is the man behind it all. Uh, the many, of course, uh, were the many people that, that made up um, the, 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 the rest. Um, you know, you had the filter room, the operations room, um, the Royal Observer course, Corps itself, and the few themselves the fighter pilots and the air crew that went up um, to intercept the Luftwaffe time after time against all the odds. Uh, there was 544 air crew were killed during the Battle of Britain, a further 422 air crew were wounded. Um, and it was to them that uh, the Prime Minister Winston Churchill famously said, never in a field of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few. Um, and the museum's rotunda gallery is dedicated to telling the courageous story of the few. So please come to the museum itself uh, and have a look. The rotunda, it, it's its something to be seen. You can wander around at your leisure, have a look at some of the medals and the artefacts and the stories and paintings um, uh, of the of the air crew themselves. And then go down to where the bunker was. Um, there's some interactive stuff as well that for, for the, for, um, the, the museum. Um, 
visitors to see and to try and get the scale of exactly what happened and inside the museum itself it's got the filter room there's uh, a statue there of Gladys Eva and some of her colleagues so you can get an idea of of how the many uh, fitted into the operations room it's um it's very much worth a visit i'd highly recommend it it is yeah. it's really hard to uh, to to describe the system absolutely accurate accurately um in this kind of discussion in a way it was at the same time, it was a very simple system in kind of broad concept. And yet in its operation, it was a very complex system. So, for example, just in terms of detecting incoming aircraft, uh, the radar reports, as I say, at the time, all went through a single filter room at Bentley Priory and, and in through um, kind of command headquarters there. Um, the reports of aircraft over land that were coming from the observer corps were fed into the system effectively from the bottom. So they would be reported in through the, the group and, and sector controls and then fed up into the system. So, you know, it, at the one, one and the same time, both simple in, fairly simple in concept and yet very complex in terms of its operation. Yes, I mean, I, at the beginning, so I hadn't realised just just how many different um, organisations, if you like, took took part in this. Because you know, you've got the GPO, even something as simple as that, the GPO down there laying the cables for the communication systems. Uh, you've got the balloon guys, um, everything, all sitting next to each other, communicating, talking, and liaising with each other to sort of filter all of this information and then disseminate it out. Yeah. I mean, you're right, Dave, you know, GPO in terms of the communication systems, absolutely vital because ground systems were based uh, largely on, on uh, landline teleprinter kind of uh, communication, voice, uh, landline voice communication. So without the landlines actually being through, um, the system didn't work effectively. And there were several occasions, one, uh, fairly well-known one down at RAF Biggin Hill where, where GPO workers were kind of working in bomb craters trying to re-plug landlines and then and, and redirect landlines when um, sector operations rooms had to be, be moved um, to temporary operations rooms. So tremendous amount of work done by civilians um, outside that direct military line. Dave, have you got anything that might... Um, I don't know, you know, tell the story before the Battle of Britain. Uh, yeah, in, um, in October 1937, three eminent general generals were invited to the Priory. Um, I'm not sure who by, but the AOC and C for Air Defence, for Hugh Dowding, was certainly present um, and entertained these three generals. There was Hans Jürgen Stamp, um, who was head of personnel uh, for the, what was then the illegal Luftwaffe in the early part of the 30s. Um, and then he was made chief of staff um, interestingly, during the Battle of Britain, his group fought out of Norway against Scotland in the north. So it looks like he didn't take any of his knowledge from his visit to Bentley Priory uh, with him because he was predominantly based in the north. But um, And also, and interestingly as well, he survived the war and he was a signatory to the Germans' unconditional surrender. Um, there was Ernst Dudet, who many listeners may have heard of. He was a bit of a playboy fighter pilot in the in the in into years of the, the three wars but 
he was part of von Richthofen's flying circus in the First World War. Uh, and after um, Richthofen moved on, he gave his jester, as it was known, to Hermann Göring, and they became good friends. Um, and looking after his mate, Sudet, later became the technical head of the Luftwaffe, a role which he was totally unsuited to because he had problems with alcohol and, and he liked the ladies. He later, um, unfortunately, took his own life in 1941. But again, interestingly with him, he was an advocate of the JU-87 Stuka, the Goldwing's um, attack aircraft. Uh, and, and I was kind of musing over the fact why they, they knew about the Bentley Priory. They'd been entertained there. And why on earth they didn't just bomb the place? I don't know, because it was the, the Stuka was certainly in range. I think it had a range of about 300 miles. And even from Cherbourg, which was a little distant out, it, it, it could have got there and back. Um, and, and the other general was uh, Erhard Milch, who was uh, secretary of the Ministry of Aviation, and he, he answered directly to Hermann Goring. And it was him, it was he that at a dinner, uh, he mused or asked a question to Dowding directly. He's reported to say, now, gentlemen, let us all be frank. How are you getting along with your experiments with radio detection of aircraft approaching your shores? And this, don't forget, was a, a secret um, RAF station still in 1937. Although I have read that there was a great big roundel outside on the front gate by the armed guard, uh, and, and, and even the local bus knew what was going on there. The local bus drivers. Um, so yeah, it's it, and and it kind of got me thinking about within the Blitz itself why the the um, the headquarters was largely untouched. There was some V1 damage. Um, I think over the period of the Blitz. As Tim said, sort of, it's, it's known from the 7th of September up to about May. Uh, the following year, 1941, there were, uh, we counted, I think, with 17 V1s, one of which landed relatively close and broke some windows. There were five V2s, one broke a window in the officer's mess. That was on the 21st of Jan, 1945. Um, and a couple of bombs destroyed some huts. But other than that, there was no damage of any sort of... Um, to speak of and of course we know how uh, inaccurate bombing was at the time there were some sticks of bombs that fell if you look at the maps um there was a cluster in bentley way which is quite local um from stratfield roads the junction with honeypot lane which is a, a long very old road um they, they fell in a line adjacent to gordon avenue which is about the closest and there was another stick that that you can plot from park bridge road in pinner across the uxbridge road and finally a cluster around Hatch End Station. But of course we can only speculate because it wasn't accurate at all. And I just wondered whether these three generals had reported directly back to Goring and said, leave the place alone, it's lovely. I think we'll have that when we invade. But we'll never know, unless we can un uncover some documents, of course, from, um, from, from archives that are now happily reopening again. It's something I'll have to look into. The truth is out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, th I think it's a very interesting theory and, you know, I mean, it, it could it could well be that. But then, you know, as you say, said as well, you know, obviously the bombing wasn't always accurate. So perhaps it was just, you know, obviously Bentley Priory, its location is within, you know, those grounds, like a forest, well, wooded area quite close. And maybe, you know, obviously in blackouts, it would have been so, you know, darkness. So maybe... They went for, I don't know, say the housing that they could work out. And, you know, maybe it was something like that. Or, you know, with the V1s, obviously they were, weren't accurate. Maybe some of them that have landed in 
the vicinity were intended for there and it could have you know just gone past or landed short of there so you know I think I think it's such an interesting thing to think about and like you say without maybe delving deep in records then you know who who I mean that's even if the answer's there I mean you know it could have could have been more of a personal thing for the people who uh, visited there amongst themselves. Who knows? So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's so interesting. I think, you know, looking at those bomb maps as well, you know, it, it's, yeah, so, sometimes there's, you know, it, it makes sense in a kind of way, why and there, but sometimes I think there is no reason as such, you know, it's just, I guess, wherever they, wherever they decided to bomb. So, um, yeah, no, it's very interesting in that sense. That it, it is interesting, Alex. Yeah, in terms of um, that, the problem of finding a target by night in the blacked-out country. Um, probably interesting to note, given what happened later in the war uh, with with the Allied bomber offensive, um, that the Germans were leaders, as it were, in. Um, blind bombing aids, you know, they had um, as early as, as the as 1940, a, a Pathfinder group, Kampfgruppe 100, um, designed to, to kind of find the target and mark it for, for the rest of the bombers um, to hit. Uh, they had technical aids like Nickerbein, pardon my German expression, I'm not particularly good at German, um, which to say was a was a, a radio aid that uh, enabled them to pinpoint targets. Um, Exgerat, which was another radio aid to help the pathfinders pinpoint the the targets by night. Um, so yeah, even in the the Battle of Britain and, and the Blitz, the Germans actually they're leading on um, the the practical application of uh, blind bombing aids. Great, thanks for that, Tim and Dave. So I hope you have enjoyed this episode with a reflection back to the commemorative day. I would also like to mention now to keep an eye out for some new podcast episodes running alongside the Bentley Priory Museum podcast series, which will be talking about the creation and process of the upcoming exhibition at the museum in 2022, Memoirs of the Blitz, which I am pulling together and curating. So you can keep up to date with that and more on Instagram with the account of the same name. So until next time, thank you for listening, and we will be back very soon.